0: oh you should have seen sorry i'm just going into my little lilac folder and uh, you should have seen the presentation that i did, that i did for the rest of the subject librarians to like feedback it was all memes <laughs> Every slide had a meme on it and then I completely misjudged the audience and they had no idea oh, no. what was going on.
1: Oh my God. Well, <laughs> can you please send me that? I want to see that. Please. Yeah. I would like to see that.
0: <laughs> I will do. I was so proud of it. And this was like the scaled down version that I did as well. I started off with an original cut that was yeah. even more memes. And I was like, <laughs> I'm not sure this is work appropriate. So yeah. I like, cut back a lot of the memes and still it it was an yeah. absolute flop because I'm I... the youngest by quite a bit.
1: I, I reference TikTok all the time and I get quite blank stares back to me and I'm like, please, come on. What are those? Come on. <laughs>
0: what are those? What are they those? are my crap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I've now found the presentation. Oh, so cool. Yeah. Okay. Professional. Professional. <laughs>
1: Welcome to Chatting InfoLit, a podcast for new professionals
0: produced for the CLIP Information Literacy Group. In this series, we'll be hearing from both new and seasoned professionals across different sectors about their experiences, as well as discussing information literacy projects they have been involved with. Corin
1: Peacock is a recent graduate of the Sheffield iSchool and a subject librarian at the Arts University, Bournemouth. In today's episode, we talk about their experiences being a new professional and their research looking at self-tracking in the LGBTQ community. Hi Corinne, uh, thank you for joining us on today's episode of Chatting InfoLit. Today we're talking to you about your uh, project you ran on information literacy practices of LGBT students. So before we kind of talk about your project, I'd just like to start off by kind of talking about your new professional experience because I think I'm right in saying you you only recently graduated
0: oh yeah I'm a little baby librarian I am (laughs) yeah Yeah, so um I actually graduated in January and immediately started work at Arts University Bournemouth so I've been in the job six months now I've literally just passed my probationary period so yeah this is it I'm I'm very new professional and (laughs) now I'm yeah officially integrated into the workforce
1: that is very exciting and that's pretty good as well
0: to go immediately
1: from graduation into a professional librarian job. That's pretty awesome. How How did you find that? Like, did you start applying before you finished university?
0: Yes. So um, as I was finishing up my dissertation, at the same time, I was kind of looking into jobs, getting a sense of what was out there. I applied for quite a few things didn't really get much response from anyone, which was a bit disheartening at first. But then AUB got back to me and I was like, oh, it's it's speculative. I don't think I'll get it. But I went for it. I was very lucky. I got it. And it's such a brilliant place to work. So yeah, I literally had to take a couple of days off on my very first week of work to um, attend graduation. So it felt like very, like I've completed it and now start working. Yeah. Um, but it has yeah. been a brilliant experience like everyone there has been so supportive and ready to welcome a new professional and help me learn the things that library school didn't cover you know
1: yeah i i feel that when i had the same sort of thing when i started my first kind of professional library job where you're kind of like oh god i'm 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 in the deep end of things so having people who can like support you with that cuz obviously librarian school sets you up really well for a lot of things um but there's stuff that you just there's no way to cover you know like actually having a job is you know like- exactly
0: yeah. Like honestly, even just getting used to actually having to like get out of bed <laughs> for a <laughs> yeah. consistent time every day has been quite hard. I found myself just being so tired in the evening. So I'm like, I just had to do work like all day. Um, yeah. But finally, I am now starting to settle into it. Where I'm like, OK, <laughs> now I actually wake up on time and it's not a struggle and, and I'm starting to work out how things fit into place. And particularly because at AUB, because it's a specialist arts university and it's quite small, it is quite different to the academic libraries. We sort of learned about it you know doing my librarianship masters the things I do are probably a bit outside of actually what a subject librarian usually would do like I'll man the counter or you know I do all the book ordering for my subject areas um, do the cataloging so you kind of have a hand in everything as well as the actual the core of the job which is the information literacy stuff the teaching the one-to-ones
1: yeah so it's quite a varied post it's you're kind of doing elements of like that customer service
0: side of things as well yeah no no two days are the same (laughs) yeah So
1: I, I have read through your presentation that you delivered at Lilac on information literacy practices of LGBT students. You can tell I'm reading it off the thing because I, <laughs> I don't want to like use the wrong name for it. I keep forgetting the name. So in that, you say that you did this as part of the postgrad internship.
0: Would you be able to kind of talk on that a little bit? Yeah, of course. I haven't actually said where I studied yet. That probably would be oh, yeah. helpful to start <laughs> off with, wouldn't it? So I did my librarianship master's at the University of Sheffield. And as part of that, as part of the School of Social Sciences, they offered these postgraduate internships. I think there were 26 of them because they had they all had a letter through the alphabet. And so you applied for them. It was like a competitive process where you applied, you were interviewed and you were selected you applied for a particular project and were selected by the supervisors on that project. And it ran through from like May through to sort of September. So alongside the ends of the last modules and alongside studying for your dissertation. So it was quite a lot of work trying to manage those two things running side by side, but it was like a really valuable experience for actually seeing that research process through, especially doing it alongside my dissertation. So that we were at kind of similar stages of, you know, seeing the ethical application that they completed and then doing my own. And so it did actually marry up quite nicely. It was just something that was distributed to all the students in the Faculty of Social Sciences. Here, you can do this thing. And Pam was like, you should apply for this one, because I was already an academic rep and had been doing work around wellbeing and had done some previous research around well-being within the information school so she was like you should you should try it and i was like okay and then yeah i was very lucky to do well at the interview i guess and be selected so yeah and what kind of time period was it again
1: so it was from you said from the start of the dissertation process to the end
0: yeah it was sort of may to september so we had a couple months of like planning doing the the, the ethical stuff and putting together the interview questions. Then there was obviously the recruiting period, actually trying to get older people to do it, um, which was a bit hard with everyone being off doing dissertations and stuff. So we were recruiting. We focused specifically on LGBTQ plus students just because those were the people I had access to. So I was spreading the invitation to participate through LGBTQ plus student group Facebook pages at different universities across the country. So that's how we kind of recruited most of our participants, was that kind of snowball through the Facebook groups. So yeah, we had the recruiting phase, then we did the interviews, I transcribed them all, then we coded them together as a group, then obviously the write-up and preparing the presentation for Lilac and all of that. Just then you spoke about how it you specifically chose to focus on
1: LGBTQ students. So was the project entirely decided by you or was it kind of fed into from like something the academics were already doing? You know, how did the topic kind of come about?
0: So when you apply for the project, there is a title for it already. So they've already decided what you're going to be studying. The fact that it narrowed down to students was on me <laughs> and the <laughs> fact that, I, that that was the group I had access to and could recruit from. So yeah, it was looking at just LGBTQ plus uses of self-tracking and that built on from Pam and Andrew's previous experience doing work around self-tracking and information literacy practices and behaviours. So it was in their interest area building on research they'd done before but taking into this new area that kind of hadn't been explored before because there hadn't been any, been any previous work on specifically how queer people use self-tracking. So yeah, it was bringing in a new angle and bringing me on board as a queer person as well. I think that was really beneficial is having a new opportunity to bring a new person on board who has the background experience. And then yeah, that's how it happened. (laughs) That makes sense. So I just want to
1: kind of quickly define self-tracking because like when I first sort of heard about your project, I, I kind of vaguely knew what it meant. Some things that count as self-tracking hadn't really like solidified in my brain. So would you be able to define what, what self-tracking is in this context?
0: So obviously, self-tracking is any kind of like self-track data about anything. But specifically within this project, we were looking at diet and exercise self-tracking. Participants did also talk about other kinds of self-tracking, so uh, menstrual tracking, sleep tracking, mental health-based tracking, so mood and emotions, journaling, that kind of thing. But we were focusing mainly on big apps like MyFitnessPal, using Fitbit, Garmin, that kind of thing the sort of general steps exercise food that was the main focus of the study but it was really interesting actually to hear that there was a a really broad range of things that people did use self-tracking for
1: yeah it's so interesting as well to have that specific angle as well because self-tracking is like you know i hadn't thought of it in the context of information literacy but of course it is information it's your own information it's it's that kind of data and when it comes to any kind of like information your identity is a part of that so it's such an interesting concept to kind of tie together that self-tracking and that lgbtq you know identity together i think it's such an interesting project so um let's talk a bit more about Uh, the the project itself. So kind of what did did you find from from your research?
0: Pretty much that actually there isn't that much difference. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) So for the majority of our participants, the things they reported were very similar to previous research. So they had the same kind of concerns about privacy, but then this tacit acceptance that that while apps might be sharing their data with third parties, it was kind of this trade-off, like they were willing to accept that in return for the convenience of the app. Mm. They reported similar trends in terms of how they were willing to share that data. So they were less willing to share data where they perceived, where, where they had a fear of judgment. So they were more likely to share it with people who were on a similar journey or had similar goals. So they'd be more likely to share it with, say, a partner who was also going on a fitness journey versus a parent who they feared might judge them for, you know, whatever data they were presenting. There were some mixed feelings about sharing with healthcare professionals. Some were like, yes, I, I would do that. That's helpful. Some had even been asked by healthcare professionals to share that data. Whereas for others, it was like, no, I wouldn't want to hand that off to a doctor. It's there was some sense of mistrust around healthcare professionals about losing bodily autonomy, particularly with things like tracking mental health. So there's a variety of things there. But again, aligning with the literature, there was discussion of a fear around becoming obsessed with the data. Again, that aligns with previous literature to do with how participants fear becoming too involved in in tracking this very granular data. They talked about how sometimes outputs aren't useful to them. Sorry, this is a whole lot of things that I'm just going through no, here. <laughs> please keep
1: going, it's really interesting. Um,
0: they talked about how the outputs sometimes weren't useful to them, particularly they highlighted the gender issues within apps. So for example, uh, menstrual cycle tracking apps, uh, assuming that they were women or that they could get pregnant or that they wanted to get pregnant. They noted the masculinized nature of the app, so encouraging competitiveness on things like Strava. And the, again, these are issues highlighted in previous literature about the way that these apps are designed for a typical male body. will make gendered assumptions based on what gender you put into the app and that masculinised competitive worldview that underlies a lot of the the more social media type tracking apps. We also discovered that they had a similar understanding of their motivations and reasons for tracking in the first place. So some were monitoring a particular health condition or factor in their lives. Some just wanted to uh, develop this greater understanding of their own behaviours or patterns in their body, understanding of themselves as a whole through collecting data and looking at the outputs from that data. So just coming back
1: to one of your earlier points about self-tracking and kind of the risks and rewards of it. So you were saying that some participants felt like the risks outweighed the rewards because you interviewed sort of students. Do you think that might be tied into kind of an age thing as well? Because you've, a lot of those student people would have grown up on the internet and very online from quite a young age. So maybe that
0: could have an impact. That's interesting because that's it's not something that we directly addressed in our research because obviously we didn't have a a control group of of another age or a range of ages to compare to um and i'm not sure how it sits in in previous literature but that being said you saying that has reminded me that one of the participants did directly discuss how she felt this sort of implicit sense of a mixture of distrust and acceptance and how that is because of her experience of growing up using these these apps and services throughout her life just always being, you know, like, oh, you need you need to download this app to order your food at the pub, or you need to download this app to get this money off at this store, and how that actually influenced the way that she had this, this tacit acceptance of, this is just the way the world is. You give the apps your data. We don't trust big companies. We don't trust Apple or Google or whatever to actually be responsibly handling this stuff. But because this is the way the world is, the way the world works, and the way I interact with it, I do it anyway. So it wouldn't surprise me if there was some kind of age-related difference in attitudes to tracking, or in the ways that people use self-tracking. That being said, it wasn't a main focus of our study, so it is. That's just me speculating.
1: Yeah, that's that's fair enough. It's just something that came into my head when I was listening to you talk about it. Just because that's, I must admit, my opinion towards self-tracking and and that kind of thing is a lot of like. Well, you know, they have my data anyway. They've had my data since I was a child, you know. So I think that could be. Yeah, that was just kind of one of my thoughts coming into it. Um. So another thing you talked about was those kind of tracking apps, having that gendered, you know, gendered assumptions, really. So like I saw in one of yours that they stated that they, you know, the menstrual app appeared when they'd selected the female option on the watch and like do they have like is there anything built into these apps to kind of support LGBT people or um, in terms of like you know being able to change your gender on these apps or or, or make it less feminine when when you're kind of dealing with a a period tracking app is is there anything like that built into that kind
0: of information gathering services okay so that's interesting because that focuses on actually the differences where things did differ between these participants because of their LGBTQ plus identity and how they used and interacted with these self-tracking apps. So actually several people did highlight things like that about how these apps don't necessarily cater to their LGBTQ plus identity. So talking about how uh, menstrual tracking apps don't consider that they could be in a queer relationship, that there is no risk of getting pregnant or again, that that's not something they want or the fact that they're not female or in the case of this participant that you're talking about who was a trans woman, having selected female on her Apple Watch, was presented with the menstrual cycle tracking app option, and was like, that's not relevant to me. Some also discussed how they were actually disappointed with the lack of support for LGBTQ plus identities demonstrated in the apps. So not just in terms of these kind of underlying things of not having options for trans bodies, not having multiple gender options, but a couple participants did literally say, not even Pride Month, they don't even have rainbows. Like usually companies, they go all out. They put their rainbows everywhere. It's corporate pride. You know, they want to get that pink dollar or whatever they call <laughs> yeah. it. You know, they, yeah. they, they, they are trying to actively encourage LGBTQ plus users. And they remarked, well, they didn't even bother with that. Um, <laughs> in addition to not having these apps that are tailored to be able to support queer people and particularly trans people, because that was the other big finding of our study. So there were there were two streams in sort of the terms of the findings. There is number one, there's not much difference, which is what I've talked about already. But number two was the place where we actually did see difference was in trans people, specifically trans people who are undergoing medical transition. So this links again back to the trans woman who put in female and was presented with the menstrual tracking app. She actually used um, tracking in a way that we weren't necessarily expecting, which is that she had been tracking body fat percentage and distribution using her app in order to see how hormones had affected her body. And and that was different to anything we'd heard anyone else discuss. So unfortunately, we only had one trans participant who was undergoing medical transition at the time. So that was a real limitation of the study. But it kind of opened up this area where we were like, ah, future research. (laughs) Yeah I was going to say that must be such a
1: a, a really great area to look at like specifically trans attitudes towards these kind of apps because that is such a helpful thing if somebody is undergoing like a medical transition to be able to physically see okay well this is the changes that are happening as, as a result of the HRT or whatever they're going through that must be such a beneficial way of using information I guess.
0: Exactly exactly and I think probably the more we I don't want to say investigate the trans community, that sounds wrong. But the the more we sort of studied and explored the attitudes that trans people have, I think we would discover as well more resistance to things like sharing data with medical professionals, more resistance to sharing data with apps, because there was a particularly at at Lilac, one person in the audience raised the point that actually there is increasing monitoring of trans people in society, increasing hostility. It's becoming quite a dangerous environment, honestly, to exist in as a trans person. And obviously, a lot of problems with the NHS provision for trans people. Please contact me, Gender Clinic. Please just get back to me. For God's sake, it has been six months. Just answer an email. It's terrible, the, the provision
1: yeah. in, this, in this country. Um, there was an excellent video by uh, Philosophy Tube on that topic as well. I
0: love Philosophy Tube! It's so good. <laughs> Such a good video. Oh.
1: Yeah. Um, and I think also having that understanding as well, like by conducting research into information literacy and the transgender community, I think that's a way of gaining that understanding to hopefully counteract some of this you know increasing hostility that is kind of coming up um in the world at the moment
0: exactly but i do yeah i also wonder if that will affect trans people's attitudes to sharing data and things like this like there was another audience member at lilac who said do you think that trans people's use of self-tracking apps will go the same way as women and other people in America who've stopped using menstrual tracking apps because of the the restrictions on abortion rights and and the things that, that could happen as a result of that. And I was like, I hadn't considered that, but damn, yeah, like there is this sense that the more you declare yourself as trans, the more you can make yourself kind of a target. Like I know filling out the last census I was just like ticking that trans box like, oh, my God, am I putting myself on some kind of list here? You know, I'll be the first one to go. (laughs) So I imagine if that kind of attitude will become more invasive and more prevalent. Yeah I did have a similar
1: question about that actually as well because my my thought as well was with the in terms of the risk reward ratio I wonder if in the future like that risk reward may tip slightly in terms of because yeah one of my thoughts as well was the menstrual tracking apps and in America with the overturning of Roe v Wade there was a lot of information in the news about women who were deleting their their menstrual apps in order to kind of not be prosecuted if they, they went and had an abortion so you know there may be future implications in terms of research on this to see if those attitudes do change, maybe, um, you know, if if things continue to be um,
0: heightened, I guess, if, if you want to put it politely. <laughs> exactly. And especially considering that risk-reward balance, again, particularly noted amongst trans participants was this sense that despite using the apps, they didn't necessarily find them that accurate or useful because they had unique bodies that weren't necessarily <laughs> accommodated within these binary gender options or standardised man, woman, gender patterns that were built into the app. So actually, the reward is reduced anyway for trans people because they are having to work around an app that doesn't accurately reflect their physiology and therefore doesn't accurately give data outputs anyway. They're potentially having to be encountering these microaggressions of only having binary gender options or having these assumptions made about their body based on the gender that they have input into the app. So they have that anyway. And then if it becomes actively potentially dangerous um, or detrimental to them to be putting information in, in addition to obviously all the privacy concerns that that people have anyway about these apps, yeah, I think we could see like a, a significant shift in in trans people's attitudes to these apps. But again, that is speculative. <laughs> and yeah, they hasten yeah. To disclaim.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, We are we are purely speculating here about it, but yeah, it's it's just interesting because it's kind of a form of information literacy, isn't it? It's that it's that body information literacy. It's your own data and how you want those companies to have that access and that risk reward. You sort of talked about um one of the participants found it quite helpful to self track in terms of their eating. They Said that it kind of helped them to know when they could eat. Do you think this maybe ties into the LG, like in terms of self-tracking and, and eating? And I could be wrong here, but I think LGBTQ people have a higher rate of some of these sort of eating disorder behaviours. I I could be wrong on that, but I think you know there is higher mental health issues in in these communities. And and is there a possibility these kind of self-tracking apps? Do you think feeding into those kind of things? You know, you were talking about the dangers of over-tracking. Does that kind of feed into that? Do you think?
0: You are right about that. So LGBTQ plus people do have a higher instance of mental health issues like across the board, and that's especially so for trans people. And yeah, that does include eating disorders in addition to all the other fun things. And, and I see, yeah, the point you're making is that these apps can be detrimental to some people, but to other people, they can be very helpful. So for example, Participant 3 was actually recommended to use this food tracking app, counteract an eating disorder so that's why it helped reduce anxiety for her is because she knew what she'd eaten and how much she should eat and and was able to also share that data with uh, like someone else in her life who could then act as encouragement and also someone to hold her accountable so actually for her that was a really positive experience Whereas you get other participants who reported a whole variety of problems with tracking their food, whether that was sort of an anxiety about it or simply like literal problems with the app. This chimes with previous literature, but participants reporting the difficulty of inputting actual food into apps, um, particularly home cooked meals, having to record every ingredient and, you know, the outputs, again, not necessarily matching up with, with people's unique bodies. And, you know, if you're thinking about calories and things like that. And again, those kinds of issues could be detrimental to people with eating disorders or anyone realistically but I think in terms of the actual apps themselves much like anything else they are a tool and they are neither good nor bad it's simply how they're used.
1: That's completely fair and that is such an interesting way of of looking at it as well as that in terms of like you know if somebody is struggling with that kind of thing having an app that helps to bring another person into that is kind of a a really unique way of, of helping with that because it, it can create a situation where maybe where if there's not somebody else physically around to monitor and support that person it can kind of do that from afar so that's a really interesting kind of implication of those apps that i hadn't really thought of before so that's that's fascinating
0: there's loads of interesting stuff in this study <laughs> yes <laughs> that is one thing i can say <laughs> yeah there's loads loads
1: here oh it's so it's so
0: fascinating
1: I did quickly want to come on to just talking briefly about conducting the study itself because you said you conducted it during your dissertation so what challenges were there of kind of collecting data and doing your dissertation at the same time (laughs) like how did you find that? (laughs) It was a bit much
0: (laughs) like don't get me wrong it was a really fantastic experience and actually did help a lot with my dissertation in terms of already having had like Just before, just having already done this, um, supported by two brilliant academics who could say like, and this is how we do this. And look, we've prepared this. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to yoink that (laughs) (laughs) that participant uh, information sheet and just uh, change some things. So it was really helpful. But obviously was a lot of work like I'm not gonna underplay that it was a lot of work I might have had a small extension on my dissertation um (laughs) I think but (laughs) yeah probably needed this is a Yeah. yeah it's quite an intense thing to do alongside but also I'm terrible at taking on like 800 projects so like in addition to this I was also academic rep and doing a job and also This whole project with the Sheffield and District African and Caribbean Community Association starting a library there, so I was just like casually starting a library on the side. You know, it's it's as you do, whatever. (laughs)
1: Yeah, as you do. Oh my gosh. Yes, that is that is a lot of work um, to be doing all at once. Um, But you, you know, you you managed it, and you you have this excellent project. So, can I also just ask as well about like where you see this going in the future? So you said, um, uh, I. I can't remember if we said this on in the podcast itself but you were saying that you you know are, are planning to potentially publish this
0: yep yep so it's well actually maybe I shouldn't say like yes we submitted it for a review because now i <laughs> fails horribly like everyone <laughs> will know <Yeah. laughs> but I, ha- I have yeah I, I have reasonable confidence that it, it will be published soon and yeah obviously we presented it at Lilac so and obviously talking about on this podcast as well it's great to think that we've been able to share the results of this particular exploratory study and yes we do have some very gentle plans not nothing too concrete yet some gentle plans to do further research Pam and Andrew will be getting in contact with a trans charity in Sheffield specifically and seeing if they could provide a point for finding participants to look at potential future research into specifically trans people's use of self-tracking apps and I would be keen uh, to then expand that nationally so let's say if we did like a pilot study in Sheffield and then we wanted to like take it a bit broader but you know I don't want to like I don't want to say like 100% we're going to do that and then we're going to take it national um (laughs) because in reality (laughs) yeah like I now have a full-time job like I'm no longer (laughs) a student doing only four jobs I now have a full (laughs) I now have a full time job and obviously they they do as well um, even if research is part of their job so it's yeah I don't want to I don't want to say anything too explicitly but yeah I would be very keen to be involved in further research as I know Pam and Andrew would be as well so fingers crossed there will be more stuff following up on the really interesting uh, results we got from this one
1: and and they are really interesting. I think they'd be, I'd be fascinated to see kind of what, what comes out of this in in the future, potentially, and also reading the article. Do you have anything yeah. that you would add to a kind of information literacy reading list?
0: Well, there were a few key studies <laughs> involved in, in this particular project. So obviously um, the article that may or may not be published, I can go on there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And then there were a few such as Lupton 2016, who was talking about how self-tracking is empowering. So that's a nice one to have on there. The the studies focusing on the positives of self-tracking, there was like Saint Jean, 2018, who talked about um, reading the state of bodies so that that relates back into the participants and getting to know patterns and behaviours better. Yeah, the the whole, obviously, um, Andrew and Pam's previous papers, that's that's probably quite an important one that should probably be (laughs) on there. Uh, (laughs) um, In terms of like big studies previously on issues with self-tracking, you have Baker 2020 who talked about the problems with the accuracy of self-tracking. So Data collected by devices and input into devices, the things about becoming obsessed with self tracking, that kind of stuff. You can find that in Pam and Andrew's research papers as well. Privacy issues, you can look at Healy 2021. And if you're interested in looking further into the gender issues involved in apps, so the masculinized worldview and the sort of standard male body used to design these apps you can look at c4 and garcia 2019.
1: quite a collection to add to the reading list so thank you very much for those that's that's <laughs> awesome and i i did just remember i have one final question as well um i did just want to quickly ask about the implications of this on information literacy because i kind of just wanted to sum it up a bit you know how do you see self-tracking as a form of information literacy and, and the kind of impacts of this study in an information
0: literacy context well this was the the first study into LGBTQ plus you know uses of self tracking so already like as an exploratory study it's it's breaking into new ground in terms of information literacy and self tracking i suppose implications for broader information literacy is a bit hard to say like it was quite a small study on on quite a specific you know audience of of people or of participants but i i guess there is scope for application in terms of things like well being so as we we saw For some people, using self tracking was really positive in terms of managing eating disorders, anxiety, even things like for trans people tracking body fat distribution and all of this stuff with exercise. Like, there are positive implications for well being. But also, the study shows that you've got the issues to consider as well like the, the fear of becoming obsessed, like monitoring stuff too closely issues around privacy so it, it does kind of show that there needs to be that balance in terms of using self-tracking for well-being
1: yeah it's it's fascinating and i really appreciate you taking the time thank you very much for for joining us on today's episode of of chatting info lit and and thank you for sharing your your time with us edit this out if this was a dream um, but i, <laughs> I I'm, I'm... <laughs> Sorry about that to the editor. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Beth, <laughs> and all <old> Josh. <laughs> the editor is going to hate me because I I did my wrap up a little bit before the the reading list. So we're going to, have to go back. Oops. Yes. Um. But yeah. So. <laughs>